Fantastic. Okay, so I hope you have your Bible because much to Katie's pleasure, we are actually going to study the Bible today because apparently I don't do that much. Wow. Uh, So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 22. Yeah, yeah. Ah, ha, ha. Um, we, we read the Bible plenty. Matthew 22, starting at verse 1. And I'm just going to read this short parable and then we are going to talk about it. So Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come But they refused to come. And then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf, uh, cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. Then the king told his attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Okay. So that is the, uh, the parable that we're going to look at today. The, the, the la- the, verse 15 that I haven't actually written in my notes here, it basically says the Pharisees were really cheesed off and tried to come up with, with a way to trick Jesus. So they obviously were very offended by what Jesus had to say. So the question is, what is he actually saying here? Because parables are kind of confusing, especially when we look at them, you know, kind of 2,000 years after the fact. Some of the things that the original audience just totally understood, we don't understand. Because our context is different. Uh, So I find that this parable in particular, this is a kind of parable that has been grossly misrepresented by people since then, but at the time probably wouldn't have been understood in any way like how we have interpreted it. Uh, So I want to go through it and say, uh, and, and look at some of the ways that this can be misinterpreted, but then also look at what is Jesus actually trying to communicate and why did that upset the Pharisees so much? Uh, firstly, let's just say parables very often by their nature caricature um, what's going on for the sake of effect, for the sake of hyperbole. Uh, so it's like satire. Uh, I don't know if you've watched any, like we have you know, a whole bunch of satire um, on television and it really it stretches out things to an extreme so that, you can, like, so that it's really clear. Uh, or it's like a political cartoon. So in a political cartoon, it obviously... It, it makes fun of things by making them more absurd. So a person who has a big nose in real life will have an enormous nose in a political cartoon because it stretches out reality to make things more absurd so that they can be more easily understood. And the same is true often in parables. 
so here's the thing. They take what people expect to see and they amplify it. At the same time, they take the narrative and they twist it in a way that is shocking and unexpected for the sake of a punchline. So all of those things are happening in this particular set of scriptures, which is simple to say, they aren't meant to give us a perfect picture of the kingdom of heaven or of the nature of God. That's not the point of a parable. Now, Jesus, he was the perfect picture of God. He shows us exactly what God is like, but the parable does not show us exactly what God is like. So the question is, how do we then discern which elements of the parable tell us about God and which elements of the parable are simply there for the sake of storytelling? <coughs> Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. All right, first of all, this is a little bit of a weird situation with the Jewish wedding set up. I'm sure we talked about this before, uh, but basically the betrothal and the wedding ceremony were two separate events. Uh, and so the betrothal was like a legally binding wedding if you uh, marriage. If you wanted to get out of the betrothal, it required a certificate of divorce. Um, like it was a, like a, in every possible way, apart from the consummation of the wedding or the marriage, the betrothal was being married. But then what would happen is after they exchanged um, rings or uh, there was like a dowry kind of thing, after that happened, the bride would go home with her family and the groom would go home with his family and there'd be a 12-month window where the groom would prepare a place for the bride. Now, normally that would mean he would add an extra room to his house, to his family house so that the bride would have somewhere to live with him when she came back with him. Now, the idea was that that room, it's kind of silly, but it would be a more impressive room than the room she was currently in, in her father's house. So it had to be an upgrade. That was kind of one of their cultural rules. So he went home, he built a room, and she knew that sometime in a year, he would turn up. She didn't know the exact hour. She didn't know the exact day. Uh, part of the excitement and it was the unexpected nature that eventually, sometime in a year, the groom would appear and she had to be ready. So in this story, we've had the betrothal, the year has passed, the, the prince has gone out and got his bride and now everyone is quickly running out to say, it's happening, it's happening, quick, 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 come in now, the banquet's happening now because the banquet went for like a week and if it was like, a, this is a royal wedding, so we're talking like biggest party of the year. Like, I don't know if you remember the, the royal... How do you keep it a secret? They all know that it's coming. They just don't know the exact date. Yeah, yeah. So they would know the general idea. It's a custom. It's a fun thing. We just... Come on. And what's interesting is at some point, the Jews capitulated to the, uh, the rest of culture and they started making the betrothal and the wedding on the same day because of financial readings and convenience and whatever. Like there was a point, like a thousand years after this, where that happened. Well, no, like, but it's like a year. So she wouldn't have done that for the first while. All right. Calm down, calm down. So they've sent out the servants to say, everyone come in now for the, because now we're having the big party. But they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. This is the king. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off 
one to his field, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. Now, like I said, Jesus' audience would kind of see the satire or see the caricature of reality in this story. They would know that when you are invited by a king to a prince's... Like, can you imagine the royal wedding that was a few years back? Can you imagine being invited to a royal wedding feast and then being like, nah, not coming, bad luck. Like, that's absurd, right? Even we can understand how dumb that is. And so his audience would have been listening to this going, wow, the very fact that this king in this position of power and honour made a second attempt to get his audience to turn up, that's an extreme absurdity. That's something that is outside of normal. That's an, a stretching uh, of, of the picture of the king here in a way that is unexpected. And because it's unexpected, we can likely assume that there's something more for us to learn here. When the, when the, uh, the caricature is stretched in a way that is completely expected... It's probably not the point of the story. But when there is a twist in the story like this, the king is gracious. That tells us something is unique and wonderful. Uh, And in this case, in this way, the king is reflective of our father in heaven, who is abundantly gracious, even with people who would choose to ignore him. But in the story, the king's patience has a limit which is reflected in his utterly outrageous response. The king was enraged. This is after they've mistreated his servants and killed them. He was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, obviously, again, parable, story for effect. If the king burned down the city, that would be bad. Uh, It's his city. Probably not wise to burn it down and to murder all the people or to rather to just to send an army to destroy all in the afternoon. He's like, okay, we're going to be serving canapes uh, at, at you know, 1 p.m. At 12 p.m. we're going to raise the city. You know, like, it's obviously, you know, for sake of effect. So the question then is, does this, if I've just said, well, the graciousness of this king reflects God's graciousness, does that mean that the violent, despotic murderous intent of this king in vengeance and retaliation is also a wonderful reflection of our God in heaven. Is that fair to say that? Uh, And obviously I would suggest that no, the violence of this king is perfectly consistent with what the audience expects. He is a powerful person who is ruling, who has been ignored. He should be offended and seek justice for that offence. So it makes sense for him to fight back or to retaliate in a violent way. So I would say because it's consistent with what they expect, it is not then the point or the moral of this story. Now, at this point, I know that there are probably some people, um, not everyone in this room because you all completely agree with everything I say, uh, but there are probably some people who will listen to this later and think, what a load of crap. Um, Way to just pick the bits that you like and toss out the bits you don't like. Uh, You can't be fast and loose with the scriptures like that. You can't just say, well, God's gracious, but he doesn't care about justice. That's not what I'm saying. Um, Are you looking for someone live to heckle you? No, no, don't need a heckling. um, Yeah, yeah, happy to provide. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, 
So why am I able to then, why am I able to edit, so to speak, or interpret this parable in such a way that, that I keep the graciousness of the king that is reflective of God in heaven, but dismiss the anger and judgment of the king and suggest that they are not reflective of God? How can I get away with that? Now, there are two reasons. The first, you've heard a bunch of times. So bear with me. Don't keep rolling your eyes during the first bit. And then I will also give you a second bit that I hope will solidify why I think that. Uh, but the first is because I'm a Christian and I think that, that God is like Jesus because Jesus uh, says this. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the father. In Hebrews, it says the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus tells me and shows me exactly what God is like. And Jesus makes it very clear. He says, love your enemies. He doesn't say, get cheesed off, raise their city to the ground and murder them all. That is never how Jesus says to react to people who are your enemies or people who ignore you or people who mistreat you. He always says to lay down your own life, not to take their life. So knowing what I know about Jesus, I always start with Jesus, especially when I'm interpreting what Jesus is saying. I think it's reasonable to start with Jesus and say Jesus never advocates for violence. Now, how then in this parable, though, if that doesn't satisfy you that, that I'm a Christian and that I believe what Jesus says about God and shows us about God, how can I further then provide evidence that the violence here should not be attributed to God and that that's not the point of this parable? It is not a parable about God's violence or about his justice even. Uh, I will say this, though. The consequences for rejecting God are very dire. There is a judgment, and this sermon, uh, sorry, this parable does talk about judgment. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, towards the end, it, it absolutely addresses judgment and the consequence of that and how serious that is. Here's the thing, though. It never suggests uh, in the Scriptures, in my opinion, clarify that with every possible uh, caveat, that, that God is the author of violence. Rather, I think that the destruction wrought by this king in this parable is a prophetic foreshadowing of the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in AD 70. So let's put these pieces together. Look, look at the historic reality with me in the context of this parable. Remembering that the Jews, the Pharisees got upset with Jesus because they understood what he was saying. The Jews have an invitation into the kingdom, just like the guests were invited into the wedding banquet. And but then when the kingdom was announced, when he sent out his servants, when the kingdom was announced by John the Baptist and by many of the prophets who heralded it, saying, get ready, get ready, get ready. What did they do to the prophets and to John the Baptist? They killed them. They killed the king's servants who were proclaiming that the kingdom has come. And then they rejected and killed Jesus as well. So after that, the Gentiles, all of the other people, good and bad, were invited into the kingdom. And the city of Jerusalem, which is where the people were who murdered the prophets, the people who killed the servants who went forth to proclaim the, to the, the wedding feast was begun, that city got razed to the ground by the Romans in 70 AD and the temple was destroyed and not a stone was left upon a stone. So this is Jesus making a prophetic declaration about the Jews rejecting the kingdom of God, the Gentiles being welcomed into the kingdom and Jerusalem being destroyed. That's a, but we can see that from history, that that's how it unfolded. 
So the reason that I am confident that God is not reflective of this king, the king who raised the city and killed all the people who opposed him, is simply because Jesus already shows me how God feels about that destruction. We know how God actually felt about this coming destruction because Jesus shows us. In the very next chapter, Jesus is returning into Jerusalem. It's at the end uh, of his ministry. And he says this in Matthew 23, verse 37 to 39. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Can you see how these two... These things that are all of one paragraph apart in the scriptures. He's explaining this. Um, Who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the Gospel of Luke, it records this same uh, entry scene. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You see, I know how God feels about the destruction of Jerusalem and the killing of, of, the, of its inhabitants because Jesus shows me. And unlike the king who was in his wrath and anger and vengeance went out and raised the city and destroyed his enemies, Jesus says God weeps over Jerusalem and he longs to gather everyone under his arms like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus weeps not out of some violent, um, destructive curse over Jerusalem, but out of his deep love and heart for Jerusalem. So I know that the king, it's like Jesus is clarifying for us The king is gracious in this story. That reflects my father. But don't think that my father also reflects a violent despot who destroys and annihilates and and hates everyone who opposes him. Jesus makes it very clear for us in this next chapter that he weeps over the people who have rejected. He weeps over the the city uh, uh, who killed the prophets and rejected the kingdom coming. God doesn't need to bring violence. All he needs to do is step back giving them what they want. What he says about, the, about Jerusalem, he says, look, your house is left to you desolate. He's saying what you clearly want is a, a house, a temple, a worshipping place that God is not in. Desolate means empty. It means barren. It's a desert. I am not in the house of God in your city anymore because that's what you want. So God steps back. He steps back from Jerusalem. And you know what happens? The Romans and the Jews who have been harassing each other for hundreds of years... Finally, the Romans get fed up and they come in and they find that the city is empty of the Father and they just obliterate it and they destroy the temple. They wanted an empty house. They wanted to do religion, but without God. They wanted to do religion, but without Jesus. They wanted to do religion, but without the prophets. So God steps back and Rome comes in and and obliterates the city and God does not celebrate in that violence. He weeps. We know that because Jesus shows us.
So in the parable, when we see something that twists their expectation, we need to pay attention to that. But when we see something that simply, uh, you know, that, that, that simply amplifies their expectation, that's probably not the, the thing that is revelatory for us in the parable. It's just what we expect. Then he said to his servants, okay, destruction done with. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. This king um, is a bit Jekyll and Hyde, isn't he? But those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So that the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now you've got to remember, something about what Jesus had to say totally provoked his audience to want to trap him and destroy him. They were very angry at the end of this, and this is probably part of it. Because he's making a point, he's like, the kingdom of heaven is just like when the king invites all of the wrong people to the party, the good ones and the bad ones, and he kicks all the people out who think that they should be there. And like this is this is a twist. This is a, this is offensive. This is definitely not how royal wedding receptions are meant to work. And as a result, this is probably part of the punchline that we need to see. God desires that all people, good and bad, everybody gets an invite to this table. And wouldn't that be amazing if that's what our gatherings looked like? If they looked like everyone was welcome to be uh, at this table with us. It didn't matter. Because I think often when we have weddings, it looks a certain way. It looks like everyone who loves you turns up. Everyone who knows you turns up. Everyone who fits into your same kind of world turns up. No one invites strangers to their wedding. It's too expensive. You know, like you're at that point where you're like, oh, that family member is probably not even that close. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, like we're really restricted. But, but this king is like, no, 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 no. My kingdom, let's invite everyone. Everyone, even the weird uncle. Let's invite everyone, good and bad. They're all welcome. This is a big twist in the story. It's an unexpected twist because it reflects something that Jesus wants to tell us. This gracious king also unexpected, invites everyone to his table. And I wish that our table would be filled with the unexpected people. I wish it would be filled because I, I would like someone to come in and go, wow, there's a weird gathering. Why are all these people here? They don't look like each other. They don't sound like each other. Like that would be fantastic. Good and bad, you know. I want to make fun of someone and make them out to be the bad, but it's such a small room and I don't know who's it. Who, who has a big enough ego to cope with it. Um, I've, I've, I'm still trying to find a way to talk about how Jared looks more like Jesus today than he ever has before. Um, when he came in, I'm like, it's an apparition. It's the second coming. No, but it wasn't. It was just Jared. Um, <laughs> we should be a place where all people can come and find room at the table. And, you know, I've talked about this a lot in, in the last couple of months, how there are a bunch of people in our society who, like, bounce off the, the kingdom, like the eunuch who went to the temple, and he kind of bounced off. There was, like, a barrier that was like, nah, you're not welcome. So he kind of left, and he was halfway out of town when Philip bumped into him, and he's like, mate, you're totally welcome. And he's like, are you sure? Is there any reason why I can't get baptised? And like, mate, there's no reason. You are totally welcome at this table. So he got baptised straight away. He's a guy that 
wanted to be in, but found himself on the out. And I would love for our church to be a church that was full of people that desperately sought and wanted to be in the house of, the, of, of God. But when they got there, uh, they somehow got bounced off and they found their way. We find them on the street. We find them on their way out of town. They're reading a scripture and we just say, you know what? You are actually welcome. I would love that. I would love for us to be a place um, that for everyone who has felt unwelcome anywhere else, that they would feel welcome here. Good and bad. See, it doesn't say you have to look a certain way. It doesn't say you have to behave a certain way. It just says you are welcome, good and bad. Anyone can come to this feast. But when the king came in to see his guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? Friend. There's a comma there. How did you get in here without wedding clothes? Friend. And the man was speechless. He's speechless. So good and bad, anyone's welcome. But if you're going to turn up, you better put on your, your Sunday best. We had this uh, thing a few years ago where I wanted to do a Sunday best church. Because we're all dressed like a bunch of sloths. You know, like we, like with a few exceptions, with a few exceptions, a few weeks ago, Ellen turned up like fully dressed up. And I was like, what the hell? She's like, I'm going somewhere else afterwards. <laughs> oh, well, that makes a lot more sense because... You know, like, like uh, you know, apart from like babies whose parents want to show them off, no one really dresses up when they come to the White House, but... I'm wearing my best perfect uh, Listen, and, and I did actually notice your boots earlier and I'm like, when did I, when did I think, when did I become a person that cared about someone's boots? Um, but it's like, I can't tell her I like her boots whilst we're doing worship. Everyone will know that I'm distracted. So I don't want anyone to know that that, that happened. So... Uh, so yeah, you're wearing your Sunday best and that's what it's like. When you come to the royal banquet, like, like look at the wedding coverage. When there's a royal wedding, it's like every like Vogue or New Age or I don't know, whatever, stupid magazines and TV shows, they spend the next month just publishing photos of people and their fancy outfits. Because what you wear, it says something. It says that you, uh, you recognise the importance or the spectacular or the, you honour the event and the attendees. And this guy's like, nah, mate. I'm coming because of the free food. I'm wearing my singlet. I'm wearing my thongs. And you can, because I don't care less about your stupid son and his stupid bride, whatever. So he turned up, but he turned up with very much the wrong attitude. And it wasn't because he got mugged on the way in. He was speechless. They, when he said, why are you dressed like this? He didn't say, oh, because some thugs took all my clothes to stole my sneakers. Um, he didn't say that. Because he was there and he was, he was um, disdain towards this king and, to, and, he, and towards his son who was being wed to this bride. And the king is having none of it. The king told his attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, parable, pretty sure the king can't literally throw this guy into the darkness uh, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth not within his capacity. Uh, and we know this is an idiom, this term. This is another one of those sections that gets grossly misrepresented by people who have a particular agenda. Uh, so let me explain it to you. The term into the darkness is an idiom uh, for the place of judgment. It's not an idiom for hell. The weeping and gnashing of teeth here, the gnashing of teeth, this is when like in, uh, it's, in Luke you find that, sorry, in Acts, um, Luke wrote Acts. In Acts 7.54, it says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they heard Stephen, who they were not happy with what he was saying. It says they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. So the idea of gnashing your teeth 
is to say, I'm angry. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever seen a kid that has big emotions and they, like, oh, I hate you. Like they, oh, like the gnashing of teeth is not, you're going to go there and someone's going to eat your flesh. That's not what's being said. It's saying you will be thrown to the place of judgment where, where people disdain God and they are, they, are, they are angry and they are mean and they're gnashing their teeth and they hate God. And they're, but they're weeping and sorrowful because it's like they've been caught doing something they know they shouldn't be doing, but they're not repentant. So they get thrown into this place of utter darkness, into the place of judgment where they are getting ready for the judgment seat before God. And I, like I said, this, this is a parable about judgment, but it's not a parable about God's violence. This is not a statement about eternal conscious torment. It's not a proof text for a hell of vindictive torment forever. It's just, it's saying that, that if you turn up to the table of the banquet of the Lord and you disdain God and you hate his son and you hate the bride, then chances are when you go to the judgment, you're going to be angry and seething with rage. But it doesn't say what happens after that judgment. And that's, that's a, a thing for a different sermon. Um, I don't believe in eternal conscious torment where God allows people to be tortured forever because it seems so inconsistent with Jesus. But this parable is not about hell. It just says that this bloke who curses God will be thrown to a place where he will be judged, where all the other angry, malice-filled people are getting ready to be judged as well. Uh-huh. It's a parable. Free food. Yeah, that, that's my excuse. It's so, it's, but it's painting a story. It's saying that the, the original people who were invited, they all got destroyed. And the new people who got invited, even then someone managed to slip, slip in who didn't actually want to be there. So the question is, what's the lesson in this for us? And, and, and maybe in, in answering uh, what that lesson is, it'll answer your question, Megan. Uh, well, now here's the thing. The man's clothing reflected something that was going on inside of his heart. He wasn't happy for the bride and groom. So he was removed and put in a place that was consistent with his heart. A place of disdain and anger. His heart was inconsistent with the joyful banquet celebration that is like the kingdom of God. So he was removed from that place and put to a place that was consistent with his heart. It was consistent with what he wanted. Just like the Jews wanted a house of God that actually didn't have God, that was completely empty of God. This is a person who doesn't want to celebrate Jesus and he doesn't want to celebrate the bride. He doesn't want to celebrate with the king. So he's taken from that place and put where exactly where he wants to be. Which is a place that is not near the king. And the party celebration. Question. Yeah. So you're saying into the Father's darkness is an idiom for darkness. Yeah, yeah. Is that a well-known idiom in the time? Yeah, in apocalyptic literature, that, that's consistent. Like that's not just something I'm making up based on this story. In apocalyptic literature of that era, that terminology was used of the place of darkness or the final place of judgment. Um, that, that's, that's, so they would have understood that. Um, uh, it's only in more recent times that we uh, in the church have tried to twist that into a proof text for hell. Um, 
So I'm not saying, I'm saying that this actually doesn't comment at all upon after the final judgment. I'm saying that only talks about up to that point. The man's clothing reflected his heart. He wasn't happy for the bride and groom, so he was removed to a location that was consistent with his heart. And then we have this last verse. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And all the Calvinists rejoice. No, um, this isn't a proof text for Calvinism either. Calvinism didn't exist when Jesus was telling this parable. The idea that, uh, you know, that, that God only chooses some people and not everybody else doesn't even line up with the Old Testament where he said, I want this group of people who I choose, the choosing of God's, of God's holy people was so that they could be a light unto the nations. He chose a people group for the purpose of expressing his glory and love to the entire world. This is a parable about how it's not just those people who were originally invited are welcome at the feast. It's a parable about how everyone, good and bad, is welcome at the feast. The whole point of this story is the opposite narrative of the popular view of Calvinism that says only some people are invited. and uh, Sorry, that everyone can be invited, but only some people are actually really chosen. That's not what this is saying at all. It simply says that the gates to the kingdom of heaven are very, very wide and open for all to come through. You still have to come through them, though. That the ultimate step into that kingdom, the ultimate step to join that banquet and to wear clothing that reflects your joy of being in that banquet is up to you. You choose. All are invited, but only some are chosen. God won't force you to wear wedding garments. He doesn't force you to prepare yourself to, to join in the celebration of the union of, of, of the groom and the bride. He doesn't force you to do that. But when we come to that meal, as people who love Jesus, when we go to a wedding as people who love the bride and the groom and want to celebrate with them, we put on our best clothes, we put on our nicest boots, we dress up our children in bow ties. Because we, we all want to express our clothing as an expression of our joy and our love and our admiration and our hopes. We put on our Sunday best. In Ephesians 4, uh, verse 22 to 24, it says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Take off those old crap clothes. Take off the, the history, the things you were dealt, the stuff that didn't go well, the, the things that are broken inside of you, the, the, the anger and the malice and the distrust. Take it off. Which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. When we choose to be a part of this feast, because we've all been invited... We choose to take off the old garments and put on the new garments. In Colossians 3, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and bear with each other and forgive one another if any one of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is what it means to put on the right clothes to join the wedding feast that is like the kingdom of God. 
This is the point of the parable. Everyone's invited. And when you're invited, you should dress as well as you can. Be transformed out of your old self into a new self. Take off your dirty singlet and your thongs and put on your suit and tie. Put on your, your fancy dress. Put on compassion and kindness and joy and faithfulness and hope and love. Because if you turn up to that feast and you still carry around your malice and your anger and your bitterness and your disdain and for your, and your impurity and, and sinfulness, if you don't take the new garment that, that you are offered, if you refuse the, the beautiful new garment, the new creation work that Jesus does inside of you, then you will be taken from the wedding feast and put into a place that is consistent with your clothing, consistent with your heart. You see, there is judgment in this, uh, in this parable. This is still, you know, like I said, I don't think that God is reflective of the violence or the malice of this king. I think they are an exaggerated hyperbole for the sake of a story. And I think that that's evidenced very clearly by how Jesus shows us how God feels towards the destruction of Jerusalem and towards his people. He wants to gather them in. But it is absolutely still a story about how we must put on the new garments. We must be transformed. And how we do that and what that means and how we relate to each other, uh, we'll have to cover that another week. Um, probably a lot of weeks. Yes. This whole thing was just about, I want you to wear nicer clothes. That you- no. No. <laughs> Not everyone, I mean you, you're particularly low bar, but I think, uh, yeah, the moral of the story is that there is a king that is gracious and kind and invites everyone and he gives second chances and he opens the door to people who are good and bad. See, he doesn't say, because a person, I'm not saying that if you are not holy in every aspect of your life, you get kicked out and thrown to a place of darkness. I'm saying, are you prepared to put on the new clothes? Are you prepared to work out your salvation? Are you prepared to come together with everyone else who would celebrate this incredible banquet of the union of the bride and the groom and do that in a way of joy in your heart because then you're welcome to stay. Good and bad, you're welcome to stay. But that if we disdain the father, the king, and we refuse to put on the new clothes and we say, I hate what you're doing here, then there is a judgment that comes and there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and anger and malice in that place. And then after the judgment, the wages of sin is death. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. And bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Amen.